Good morning. It is a joy to be here this morning. I was a little bit uh, late trying to get a few things done, and I, I walked in and sat beside Katie, and I, I don't remember what song we were singing at that time, but I was like, man, is the singing better, this, or like, is it louder or something this morning than, than I'm, I was ready for? Yeah, it's pretty good this morning. Okay, all right. Because where I was in the back, I was like, I'm hearing it, but man, when you move up front, you're like, ah, that's nice. That's part of the reason I always like song leading at, at growing up is because uh, you really have the best seat in the house for it because everyone's singing in this direction. I was doing some research uh, in prep for this new sermon series, and I ran across a little bit of info, a little stat that actually helped me grow my appreciation for moms. Okay, my appreciation for moms was already huge, but then I found this stat, and it's even more so. Here's the stat. Moms, on average, answer up to 300 questions a day from just one child. Some of you young moms are probably like, yeah, we're doubling that mark. Because <laughs> kids ask a bunch of questions, don't they? I mean, it, well, who am I kidding? We all ask a lot of questions, even, even in our household. I'm the one that's coming to Katie going, hey, uh, these socks are these socks. And I said, I don't care. I'm picking socks out for the girls. You pick your own. Well, okay, what about ties? No, you, you go do that. Okay, I'll do that. Because her, her, she's done. She's answering so many questions already. And I get that. But my favorite questions, I think, have to come from our kids. You know, a lot of the questions we adults ask, they're good, they're nice, they're fun to talk about, but the kids' questions, they're, some, they're so innocent oftentimes, and they're so insightful, and sometimes they're very deep. I ran across a few, eh, but sometimes they're just crazy. Here's, here's a few questions that uh, some kids have asked. Since I have two feet that can stand on two things, and two hands that can hold two different things, why do I have two eyes, but I can only see one thing? Good luck, parents. <laughs> if plants need rain and sun to grow, I like this question a lot, and rainbows are made of light and, and water, are rainbows plant food? <laughs> Here's one. How did people make the first tools if they didn't have any tools? Hey, Mom, where do thoughts come from? And probably my favorite, because it applies so well. Mom, is dad a little boy trapped in a big man's skin? <laughs> yes, yes, we are. <laughs> There's no doubt there. I'm in the mindset that, uh, that kids should never stop, should never cease asking questions. Adults should never cease asking questions because questions, I believe, reveal something within us that is actually something of God. Our curiosity was not something on our own. Our curiosity is something that we were created with, something that we were meant to continue asking questions. And I, so I believe it's a great thing, and I never want to stifle the questions, although sometimes I wish that they would kind of back down a little bit, but I don't ever, ever want to lose the curiosity because every one of us needs a piece where we're asking questions and we we need a, a platform in which it is safe to ask questions and let's be honest in church it has not always been safe to ask questions 
and I want our congregation, and I want our Bible classes, and I want the people that gather here to be a safe people in a safe place to ask questions, even difficult questions, about life, about faith, about anything. Because I think that's healthy and I think that's good. And so while I could do a whole sermon series about the questions that we ask, and especially we ask of God, that would be good. But we're not going to go that route. Because that, those questions can lead, a, like, they're, they're wonderful, and, and, and they can lead us in one direction. But where I, as I was beginning to do a sermon series on that, I ran across another idea that what if we were to contemplate before we ask our own questions, what if we were to contemplate the questions that God asks? What if we were to flip the tables around instead of always bringing our questions to God and saying, God, what about this? What about that? What if we were to allow God to ask the questions of us first? What if we were to hold our tongue just for a little bit and listen and maybe even answer what God is asking us? And I couldn't shake that idea. I couldn't shake it because I was like, man, there's a lot of questions in Scripture that God is posing that I'm like, we ought to consider. We ought to look at because I think not only we can learn something about God, just like we can learn something about all of us, you can learn something about a person with the kind of questions they ask. You can learn something about God by the kind of questions he asks. So to kick off this series, it's going to take us uh, into the holidays. This series, we're going to start with a question. Seems appropriate, right? What is the first question God asks in the Bible? I mean, what is the, the, the very first question that he asks? If we're going to look at all the questions that God asks, what is the first one? Well, as you can imagine, it shows up pretty early in the Bible. If you want to go and turn to Genesis 3, feel free. Genesis 3 is, is where we're heading, but first let's do some background in Genesis 1 and 2. Because I think we need to have the setup of Genesis 1 and 2 so that we can appreciate Genesis 3. So in Genesis 1, if you remember, this is a story of how God created everything. It tells us how God created it by his word. It tells, it tells us what he created um, and even when he created, in the order that it was created. And, and so this is the six days of creation that are happening, seventh uh, day of rest uh, for that full week, um, as happening in chapter 1. And we see not only sequence and some beautiful language of what's happening in the creation. Uh, the big points is that God created, that God created, and that God created. And then whenever he created something, he declared it, he proclaimed it good. And when God says something is good, that it's not like a hopeful, wishful thinking. It is a proclamation of truth, that it is good. When God created it, it is good. So after everything that God created, he says, it is good. Then we continue our story and go to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, it tells us a little bit different view, <clears throat> a little bit different idea of creation. It, it focuses on the creation of humanity, Adam and Eve. Kind of slows down uh, the, the story and says, hey, let's focus here for a little bit. And we find that Adam and Eve, Adam is made first and then woman is made, uh, Eve is made from man's rib. There's fun jokes to be said about that, but we're going to save those for another time. Um, then all of these things happen, and, and they're placed in the garden. And so what we see in, uh, in Genesis 2 is that humanity is the prized creation. 
Humanity is what all the Genesis 1 story was leading up to, is that God is creating humans who, are, who bear his image, who are in his likeness to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, and to partner with him in something that is much more grand than simply living and dying. A story that's from the very beginning, God had a plan for humanity to join him in this wonderful scheme, this wonderful journey, and it is good. God has a garden, he plants a garden, and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. Basically what Genesis 2 is telling us is that God not only created humanity, he gave them a place to not just live, not just survive, but to truly thrive. And everything's good. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And then we come to Genesis 3. And we see something else now that is new. But this time, this new thing that shows up is not good. And it comes in the form of a servant, of a serpent. Sorry, I didn't say that right. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? This is the first question in the Bible, not God's question. This is coming from a serpent. It's coming from what later writers would call the devil, would call Satan. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now, you know that, uh, you know, you've probably had a teacher tell you there are no such thing as dumb questions, right? All questions are good. All questions need to be asked. There's no such thing as dumb questions. That's, that's fine. You may debate that. But here's what I can tell you. There, not all questions are honest questions. That one's pretty clear. There are honest questions and there are dishonest questions. The honest questions of this world and of our life and of people are the ones that are truly seeking an answer. They truly want to know. This is the curious nature that God gave us. These are good questions, the honest ones. Most questions kids ask, they're going to be honest questions. A lot of questions adults ask aren't always that honest. The serpent here asks a dishonest question. This is not the musings of a skeptic. This is not, well, you know, is this really true? Is this really real? Let's, let's, let's find the evidence. The way this serpent asks the question, just in the, in the simple fact of how he asks it, promotes a view of God that is not good. Just in the way that he asks it, he is bringing deceit into the world. He's asking Eve to defend the goodness of God. And when you're in that position, it already is set up for a problem. There's already a problem going on. So this serpent, this is not an honest question. This is meant to draw a wedge between God and humanity because that is Satan's purpose. We need to remember that. His goal is not to be likable. His goal is not to be popular. His goal is to draw us away from God. And he does it quite often by asking us dishonest questions. Little bit of a truth maybe, half truth in the question, but he asks us this question. And it works. It's the annoying part. Satan is really good at his job. 
Because it works not only here, but in our lives as well. Look at how the story continues. There we go. Eve defends it. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, for if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. I can't get my clicker to work this morning, either one of them. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. This is what we know as is the fall. This is when sin enters the world. In the story of the beginnings, Genesis 1, 2, 3, all these beginning things happening, this is the beginning of sin. Eve thinks to herself, based upon the question from the serpent, that I might just know better than God knows. I must not, just might know better for myself than God knows for me. This is what she thinks. This is where she goes. Satan's deceit worked. And so she ate. And she gave some to Adam as well. And he ate. They sinned. They did not follow God, but rather their own selfish desires. Through the prompting of this certain serpent known as Satan. Look what happens next. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. At that moment, their eyes were opened. Satan said it. But what he didn't say, this is the deceitful part of his question, this not good question. Their eyes were opened, and they felt shame. Satan didn't tell them that. They found this out on their own. Now, the shame they experienced was not just because they were naked. They'd already been naked, hadn't bothered them before. But now, it bothers them. I don't think it's because they all of a sudden realize their own state. What they realize is that they have disobeyed God. And let's be honest, any and every time that your conscience is right with God and you disobey Him, you feel shame. Every time. Even if you go back to the same well that you've been drinking out of for years, even if it's your hundredth time to try this sin, you still feel a bit of shame until your conscience is seared, and that's a problem. But before that, you will always feel the shame because the shame is part of what comes when we disobey God because we were supposed to go with God everywhere. This is how we're created to walk with him every day. And whenever we don't, we know it. And there's shame. That moment 
is not just shameful, it's also a distance from God. They distance themselves from God because of sin. They have walked away because of the sin in their lives. In fact, this is how Isaiah would say it in Isaiah 59 verse 2. He says this, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What a horrible little description right there. To think that God, God's face is hidden from you because of something you've done. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what sin does. When sin enters your life, you are separated from God. It isn't just a bad thing to sin. It is shameful because you are separated. You have distance between you and your creator. They feel the shame And instead of doing the one thing that would correct the shame, they do the only thing that they think they can do at the moment. They go and hide. They go and hide when they hear God coming in the garden. They go and hide. Now, have you ever tried to hide from God? It's not a fair game of hide and seek with God. I mean, I'll, I'll say he cheats. He knows where you're at. It's not a fair game. But maybe you've tried to do it in other parts of your life and it's worked. Part of the reason we think we can hide from God is because we have hid things from our parents. And we have hid things from our spouses. We've hid things from our kids. We've hid things from loved ones. We put them in the closet, brush them under the rug, and they've never known. These are the skeletons in our closet that we don't want anyone to see. We have hid those well. And we think because it works with humans, it's going to work with God as well. That's not how God works. God is not a human. God is the one who created us, not the other way around. God knows everything, omniscient, and God is everywhere at all time, omnipresent. Hide and seek doesn't work with God. But notice, this is the very context in which God's first question shows up. In the midst of all these things going on, this is the very context in which his question shows up. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Yoo-hoo! Hide and seek time! It always cracks me up. It's like this cosmic game of hide and seek, you know. Let's find the two humans on this big earth. Did God not know where they were? I mean, surely God, God could have walked into the garden and said, I see you. You're behind the bushes. Short game. Come on, guys. It's not what he, it, surely this question is not for his benefit. The first question in the Bible cannot be for God's benefit because he doesn't know. Where are you? He knows exactly where they are. So maybe this question is less for the benefit of him and more so the benefit of Adam and Eve. Maybe, maybe God is asking them, where are you? So that they deal with the fact. So that they are confronted with the fact of where they are. Have you ever been hiding in a place and not exactly known why or where? Have you ever gotten yourself into a mess, into a jam, and and you all of a sudden go, I don't know how I got here. I wonder if they felt the same. 
They knew exactly how they got there, but man, where the here is, where is this place? So God says, where are you? Evaluate where you're at. Even more importantly, this first question, I love it. What God does is he calls them out of their hiding. Look at this. They, see, they hear God coming. They, they, you know, apparently it was a habit of God to walk through the, through the garden and you know, go talk with them. How cool is that? They hear him coming and they hide. God comes toward them. He knows what they've done. He knows what has happened. He knows what's gone on. And yet he still goes toward them. And when he says, where are you? He is calling them to come out of hiding. On their own. Yeah, he could have just said, you're right there, come on out. But instead what he does is says, do you know where you're at? Because I'm right here. You want to come? Where are you? Why are you not with me? It's a question that God repeats over and over in our lives, isn't it? It's a question that we hear. Where are you? I'm here. I'm waiting for you. Where are you? What's going on? This is a question of contemplation that we need to be asking because our present location is often not where it should be. Notice God does not ask, where have you been? What have you done? These are the questions we ask often, you know, of our animals. They get into something and, what have you done? I always think that's a silly question. Look at the evidence. You know, the tissue paper is strewn everywhere. That's what they've done. Where are you now? God doesn't ask, where were you? Because it doesn't matter, at least not in, 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 in what he is doing right now. It matters that you messed up. It matters that you have a past. But you can bring that past to God because God is not going to judge you by the past. He's going to judge you with what you do right now. And he's offering this option, this olive branch, if you will, to say, come back. Where are you? In this very question, plants the seed of what God's big scheme is doing. See, God created humanity and gave him a perfect place, but he also gave him something called free will, which is why we have the choice to follow God or not, which leads to the option of love. You can't have love without choice. God knew that humanity would mess up. They would have to figure this out. And so when they did, that separation because of sin separated them from each other, from God and his creation. And there was a curse that, went ha that happened with that. We'll talk about that more next week. There's this curse and there's this problem. But God knew that. And he knew that there's a way to reconcile. In a word, we call it redemption. Because this word, with this question that he, at, that he poses, just the simple point, the, the fact that God ask this question, points to the path of redemption. Because he doesn't ask, where are you so that I can stay away? He asks, where are you so you can draw near? You notice how the story continues. Adam and Eve says, you know, hey, they come out because they, they, they know they've been caught. And they said, you know what? 
we, were, we heard you coming and we were afraid, so we hid. Well, why'd you do that? Well, uh, because we didn't have any clothes. And God asked another beautiful question. Who told you you were naked? Who? Why are you listening to someone else's voice? Why have you strayed away from me? Am I not enough? Where are you? Come on back. Where are you? Because there's a place at my table. This is the same question that Jesus, it, it would be of Jesus whenever he would come. In fact, we can see in, the, in, in Luke 19, we see the purpose Jesus came, he tells us very clearly, is to seek and save the lost. Lost things need the question asked, where are you? Whenever someone is lost, where are you, is a good question. Jesus came asking, where are you? And he offers a life of redemption. A life that you can come back to the way it was supposed to be. Genesis 1 and 2. Walking with God in the cool of the evening breeze. Jesus died on a cross so that you could return back to God. So that your sins that you have committed could be dealt with through his blood. So the question is, where are you? Maybe... Maybe you have dabbled in your sin to where now it's a more, bit more of an addiction. And you don't really know how to stop it. Maybe, maybe you, are, you consider yourself so far gone that you wouldn't even know how to get back to God if you wanted to. Maybe you have let gossip or pride or any other sin, start ruling your life. And you all of a sudden look around and you just don't know where you're at anymore. It's for you that God is still asking, where are you? Where are you? Because God wants you near him. And he doesn't have to ask that question if you're right beside him. Because you and he know, both know where you're at. Where are you? Where will God find you this morning? Ready and eager to come out of hiding? Or are you going to try to put another layer on? Put another mask up? Put, go behind the fig trees to where God can't find you? Hide a little bit more of the, your sins and your past in the closet thinking, well, that'll deal with them. Or is God going to find you ready to come out of hiding? Ready to come out and say, look, I messed up, I've sinned, and I'm sorry. I hope God finds every one of us in need of him. I hope that God finds every one of us ready to answer the where are you call with, here I am, Lord. I'm sorry I messed up, but let's get this fixed, let's get this right. And this morning, if you want to get your life right with Christ, if you want to answer the where are you call from God and you say, I'm right here, then this invitation's for you. Invitation for you to come clean from your sin. 
to put on Christ as your Lord and Savior through the waters of baptism, or an invitation, if you need it, rather, to give your life to him, renewing that commitment that you already made years ago, but you have let your life slip again. Where are you? And may you answer his call this morning. Would you come if you're in need? Come as we stand and sing.